Welcome to NephHacks, high-yield nephrology at your fingertips. This is your host, Andrew Kowalski. I'm the founder of NephHacks, and I'm also a practicing nephrologist. Please visit us at www.nephhacks.com. That's N-E-P-H-H-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, join us on our Facebook group where I'll be posting updates on our podcast as well as general updates in the field of nephrology. Let's get ready to make nephrology fun again. Welcome back to Neff Hacks. So let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. Uh, we just finished off talking about some really cool advances with estimated uh, GFR, so the new equation that eliminates race. And we have also talked about xenotransplantation and the recent advancement where a pig organ was transplanted successfully into a human body without hyperacute rejection. So pretty cool stuff when there's more information about it and I'm going to scour the literature and try to get the pathophysiology of the xenotransplantation so we can talk in more detail about that. But from the renal perspective, we just ended talking about hyponatremia and it was a long uh, it was broken down into three podcasts it's a long discussion hyponatremia is tricky it's i think it's difficult i think it's one of the more difficult concepts to master and it's one of those things that you just have to listen to and review over and over again but the nice thing is once you master hyponatremia you got it it's like riding a bike and you'll understand the physiology and it doesn't matter how the patient presents you can play around with the physiology every which way and you're going to get to the end so it's amazing and it's great because you can honestly see that algorithms don't work and you just have to understand the physiology to get to the end result so it's pretty neat but um Moving forward, uh, to complement hyponatremia, we should probably talk about hypernatremia. Now, this is not going to be as long of a podcast discussing hypernatremia because hypernatremia is very simplistic. There's not much to it, and the correction is actually pretty easy. So let's get to the nitty-gritty of it. So hypernatremia is basically defined as any sodium greater than 145. So again, you can calculate your serum osmolality two times the sodium, and you know that the person is already hyperosmolar. So just based on that, you don't have to do much more. The interesting thing is, is that unlike hyponatremia, where you have so many different factors that play, you have the osmolar component, which is rare, but hyperosmolar and hypoosmolar tend to play a role, whether it's something added or in an elevation in serum glucose, or you have volume depletion and you have activation of all these regulatory hormones. But in hypernatremia, hypernatremia doesn't happen except in two types of people. And you just don't see it. Even in individuals that have diabetes insipidus, you will not see hypernatremia. What you will see is you're going to see a patient coming to you complaining that they're getting yelled at for taking bathroom breaks. Hypernatremic individuals from diabetes insipidus, whether it's central or nephrogenic, don't really realize how much fluid they're drinking, but they do realize how many bathroom breaks they take because they usually have a disruption in their workflow. And that's what ends up driving them to see help. 
and then you get to the bottom that, oh, you're also drinking copious amounts of fluid. And if you can differentiate between psychogenic polydipsia and true diabetes insipidus, well, then you can get to the bottom of what the cause was. But again, those individuals will have a relatively normal sodium. And basically what you're going to see is the two types of people that will manifest with hypernatremia are the ones that we tie down to a bed, meaning the ones that are ventilated, the ones that you know are have mental status changes, we have them in restraints for whatever reason, people where we where we inhibit their access to free water. And then the other population are the individuals that don't have a thirst drive. So mostly this is the you know advanced age, advanced dementia range where you'll see the typical question or even a clinical presentation of a elderly nursing home patient where you put a cup of water in front of them. They'll have hypernatremia which should cause a profound thirst and they'll just stare at the cup of water now as mentioned before with insensible losses so this is where you know we cause hypernatremia as physicians so insensible losses you lose about half a liter to three quarters of a liter per day just by breathing add in being febrile or having any other changes in hemodynamics or so forth, you can definitely cause an increase in free water loss of north of a liter. So it doesn't take long to develop hypernatremia in an ICU setting. Now, we typically don't see it in the beginning, and this has been asked many times on rounds, because if we calculate a free water deficit in some of these individuals, and we'll say, oh, the free water deficit is two liters, and it's like, well, if you lose just under a liter a day, and maybe in an ICU patient, you're losing a little bit more, why don't we see hypernatremia faster? Well, a lot has to do with what they're getting. So if you look at their drips, a lot of the medications come in D5 water. So if you total up everything that they're getting, they are typically getting a decent amount of free water. So that pretty much bandages the hypernatremia and we don't see it until we change something like we eliminate some of those medications or we start aggressive diuresis. And that's when the hypernatremia begins to manifest. And an easy fix, you just give it back. And then in individuals that lose their thirst drive, it becomes a little difficult because in the majority of cases, these individuals have advanced dementia and it, it makes it trickier because you know you can't encourage them or coax them to take in fluid so usually has to be administered via a peg tube or something along those lines but um, when we look at hypernatremia so some of the typical presentation or presenting features that we see in most notably would be changes in mental status, lethargy, weakness, irritability. In advanced cases, we'll see seizures. We can see hemorrhages due to rupture of the cerebral veins because of a decrease in brain volume. And ultimately, that can spiral quickly into coma and death. So seizures, coma, and death can happen from that. The way to diagnose it is you can calculate, well, one, you'll look at the serum and it has a sodium of greater than 145, so your answer is done. Or, and the next is you can calculate a free water deficit. So we'll get to that in a second. Um, 
if we want to talk about some differentials in hypernatremia, they're really not many. So, you know, you have water loss or a water deficit, and this could be related to sporting events where there's inadequate water intake or poor water access for whatever reason because of, you know, let's say someone was stranded, whatever the case may be, or you have an increase in uh, insensible losses like we talked about, right, through perspiration, through rapid respiration. Um, again, doesn't happen often, and they have to be very specific situations. You do have a couple of hypothalamic disorders that can cause this. So you can have hypothalamic infiltration of certain conditions like sarcoid. You can have a primary hypodipsia, which is a hypothalamic disorder. As you can have a reset osmostat in hyponatremia, you can also have a reset osmostat in individuals that have primary mineral corticoid access. So this can lead to a hypernatremic state. What ends up happening is you have chronic sodium retention. With that comes volume expansion, so sodium water. And that leads to a chronic ADH suppression, which in effect leads to a reset osmostat after a prolonged period of time. Um, Use of diuretics can correct the volume expansion and release the suppression, but once ADH is synthesized and released, free water absorption can occur to correct the chronic hypernatremia. So you have the possibility of addressing that. Typically, when this happens, you really don't see a sodium approaching 150. It's usually a very mild hypernatremia. Um, there's another condition that's called a essential hypernatremia, also known as adipsic diabetes insipidus. So these are defects in the osmoreceptor as well as a defect in your thirst mechanism. So osmolality dependent ADH secretion is defective, but the volume regulated ADH secretion is intact. So in terms of decrease flow within the renal tubules and macular densis stimulation and RAS, you will get ADH stimulation from that. But from a change in your serum osm, there's a defect in the signaling and you're not going to have any sort of discharge of ADH from that. So typical manifestations, they're usually asymptomatic um, and that's just because of the chronicity and the ability of the body to accommodate changes, um, especially if they're slow and over time. Their sodiums can range. It can be a, incredibly high in the 160s, 170s, and even higher potentially. These patients may be hypovolemic, and that can happen with um, a high renin aldo state, and they could be hypokalemic along with metabolic alkalosis. Um, typically, folks that are adipsic uh, usually have some sort of obesity, sleep apnea, um, possibly even some venous thrombosis during episodes of their hypernatremia and increased viscosity. There's some thermal regulation dysfunction and ultimately seizures, coma, and death as can occur in all these cases. Typically, you know, it, it's congenital, but it could be acquired, and this can go under the hypothalamic infiltration umbrella, where you have hypothalamic infiltration through sarcoidosis or any sort of lesions. Um, in a classical scenario, when you see these patients, uh, it's basically, it's a patient with hyponatremia that's not correcting with hypotonic fluid. So 
they can't release the ADH in response to their hyperosmolarity and therefore hypo, uh, hypernatremia. So with no ADH, they can't reabsorb free water that's administered um, that can be corrected, but they can concentrate their urine, urine with fluid restriction. And by doing so, if you concentrate your urine and you, I guess, effectively volume deplete them, then you can stimulate ADH response from the volume depletion portion, and you can stimulate ADH from that. So typically, this condition can be treated with DDAVP, um, just because there's no nephrogenic component. So you can easily supplement DDAVP to have a free water retention. So that works. Um, that segues into the more common notion of, you know, diabetes insipidus. So diabetes insipidus is what we typically know. So remember, that's urine that's not salt or that's not sweet, right? So diabetes like, so you're polyuric and all that. And typically it's broken down into two causes, right? You have a nephrogenic cause and you have a central cause. So central causes that are genetically related are pretty rare. Um, secondary causes are more likely the case and related to any sort of vessel damage related to pituitary stock shearing, um, infiltration, trauma, things of that nature. Nephrogenic causes, you have a hereditary nephrogenic DI, and this is a mutation in your aquaporin channel, um, which is your ADH, you know, or sorry, uh, your aquaporin channel, and maybe your ADH receptors. So inhibit the inability of your aquaporins to get embedded or to actually release the free water into the interstitium. And in secondary causes, so that would be primary, uh, it could be from a number of things. You can have hypercalcemia, you can have hypokalemia, um, pregnancy can induce this, you can have lithium, which is one of the more common ones. Now, demeclocycline. So when we talked about hyponatremia, we talked about that, you know, in the advanced cases that are very difficult to correct by tricking the physiology. So one of the things that we can do outside of giving 3% is we can give sodium chloride tabs. Well, in cases where that's becoming difficult to manage because you are increasing the serum osm and you're increasing thirst by doing that, it's very difficult to tell someone to take all these salt tabs and not take in extra free water. So what we can do is we can block the aquaporin channel. So we can use drugs like Vaptans. Demeclocycline can also be used. It's an old antibiotic and it decreases the it decreases aquaporin channel um, and the channels how they embed into the membrane. So again, it kind of functions in a similar fashion to Vaptans where it doesn't allow free water to pass through. Other drugs incidentally can cause it to um, phoscarnate can, aminoglycosides, amphotericin, sidofavir, all those. Um, but typically you'll know that it's happening because you're you know, obviously going to have it in the history. So other causes that typically are seen and will pop up in questions in clinical scenarios is you can have extra renal losses and you can have renal losses. So extra renal losses, um, some of the more sadder cases are burn victims. 
So they're very prone to losing solute as well as substantial amounts of free water. Excessive sweating. You know, you are losing solute with perspiration, but you're also losing a significant amount of free water. So that includes, that gets put under the umbrella of insensible losses. Um, patients that have any sort of ileus and they have high output um, gastric content, so they, they're hooked up, they have an NG tube, they're hooked up to suction or, you know, intermediate suction, and they're putting out, you know, two, three, four liters, they can quickly lose uh, substantial amounts of free water and be depleted. And one of the anecdotes I have is I recently just saw a patient who, elderly gentleman, 89 years old, he does have a history of dementia, no known uh, hypernatremia from lack of thirst, but the patient did have a pretty profound ileus, um, questionable small bowel obstruction, I wasn't sure if there was a true transition point. So patient did have an NG2 placed and he had a significant amount of high output um, gastric contents daily. I mean, we were looking at somewhere, I think today's was about four liters. So quickly he can lose, you know, liters and liters of free water. So we've been chasing that loss until hopefully something ends up resolving. Um, lactulose can cause it too. And, you know, vomiting just like, you know, NG suction and so forth. So renal losses, it's typically what you think of. It's, you know, your diuretics can do it, right? Because especially your loop diuretics, because you lose free water as well, just because of where it works. Remember, it, loop diuretics work in the concentration gradient. By doing so, you eliminate the ability of the concentration gradient to work at its maximum potential, leaving behind fluid in the tubules and therefore losing free water. With that osmotic diuresis, so your DKAs or your hyperosmolar hyperglycemic individuals, folks that get mannitol, um, tissue catabolism, post-obstructive diuresis can happen as well. These are where the cells are stunned in a way from the obstruction and now you're getting this profound release. And when you have the polyuric phase in ATN resolution. So you'll see that. So diagnosis, typically, you know, it's labs and a medical history, right? That's, that's really all you really need to know. When looking at management, it's very important that you, you know, estimate the free water deficit. There's numerous free calculators out there that help you do so. So you know, you calculate the free water deficit. And when you do your calculators, you put in where the sodium is currently, and then you put in your target. So this brings the next question. How fast can you safely correct someone's hypernatremia? So we know for hyponatremia, the recommendations over the years have become more conservative. So at one point, it was no more than 12 in a 24-hour period. Then it became 8 to 10. Then it becomes 6 to 8. Now we're looking at a good 6. And the data has been very clear that going slow isn't going to cause any harm, but going slow will also decrease the risk of overcorrection and ODS. So most folks, when I ask this question, typically respond with, well, about 6 to 8 um, milliequivalents in a 24-hour period. And 
my answer to them is okay. I'm, and that's really it. The reason being, and my challenge to you is, I would love to see if you can find substantial evidence of hypernatremia overcorrection leading to cerebral complications in anyone over the age of 50. And I would venture to say that it's not going to happen. And if you do, it's going to be maybe one case. So most of the recommendations for hyponatremia correction come from the pediatric literature. And it makes sense because the issue with overcorrection of hyponatremia is cerebral edema, right? You have a hyperosmolar um, extracellular fluid compartment, and you quickly, because all the water is in the cell, right? So you quickly change where the water is at, and now you're going to have cell shifts. So to make sure that water isn't pulled out from the cell, from the hypernatremia, the cell has to increase its intracellular content to keep fluid inside the cell. Now you quickly lower the extracellular sodium, and all that fluid is going to move down its concentration gradient, which is substantially elevated intracellularly, and you get edema, most notably cerebral edema. Now, I will tell you that everybody will develop cerebral edema in a quick overcorrection of hypernatremia. The question that I'm posing is, when is it significant? And I tell you that you're really not going to see anything substantially significant in anyone over the age of 50. Now, does that mean that you just forget about it and if the person corrects 15 mill equivalents per you know 24 hours, you just let it be? The answer is no, absolutely not. You know... The reason being is, you know, in children and young adults, it, the brain fits in a finite space. And typically, younger individuals have full brains. I mean, the brain mass is completely intact. But as we get older, there is some atrophy. And one of the most common findings, and we always joke on any older individual who gets a CT head, is there's always white ischemic changes and cerebral atrophy. So you have more space. So it allows the brain to swell without any complications. Now, that doesn't mean that an individual who's, you know, in their 80s and they have a rapid correction of hypernatremia that I'm not going to be concerned. Of course I will. You know, but if the hypernatremia approaches 10, 12 milliequivalents, I'm probably not going to be that concerned as I would if someone was in their 30s and you know, we're having a rapid and substantial change in their sodium concentration. So it's in the back of my mind. I keep watch. But if it's closer to the upper end, I'm not as concerned. Now, the interesting thing is, is that a lot of the ways that you can fix hypernatremia is usually with one fluid, and that's D5 water. The other option is to give half normal saline. So most of these individuals, especially those that have extra renal loss, they're losing solute and they're losing free water. And, you know, individuals that have NG tubes and vomiting and diarrhea and so forth, you know, you're going to have to volume replete them. So why not just give one fluid, which makes it super easy. So you can give half normal saline and you can address the intravascular component and you know, address their volume status. And at the same time, you can give their free water and you can increase their 
uh, free water content and lower their sodium. So it, it's a great it's a great twofer. Now the only I guess the only issue would be if you have a very large patient and their free water deficit is large and changing them even a small amount of milliequivalents, let's say six, seven, eight milliequivalents in 24 hour period requires three, you know, liters of free water. Um, in that case, I think giving half normal saline is tricky because you're going to be bolusing it in. The nurse is going to be running in the room and swapping out the fluid, you know, every two hours, every hour, whatever the case may be. So in that case, I would typically ask to have two anticubital IVs and I would run the volume repletion in one through one IV and I would run the D5 water through the other. And a lot of times I won't even use D5 water if I have the ability to utilize the GI tract. So this is someone who is just depleted and there's no ileus, there's no, there's no contraindication to use the gut. Use the gut. It's the best thing that you can do. And you can easily give copious amounts of free water periodically and attain satisfactory correction of the hypernatremia without dosing them with a glucose solution or a dextrose solution. So if we think about it, um, let's talk about some reversible causes of hypernatremia. When we think about reversible causes, a lot of what we think about has to do with lithium. Lithium-induced nephrogenic DI is because lithium is a, it's an element that is close to sodium and it is absorbed in the ENAC channels, readily absorbed and if you have any changes hemodynamics, you're going to have changes in lithium reabsorption. And you can quickly accumulate lithium concentration in the cell and develop lithium toxicity. Well, if this happens enough, then you can quickly develop diabetes insipidus. Now, one of the things that's really nice is, is you can block lithium uptake by utilizing a drug that blocks the ENAC channels. And we have a couple of those drugs. They are not the best diuretics, so they're rarely used. Some of them are used in combination therapies, but they're rarely used. And they work well in this scenario. So drugs like amiloride will reduce the uptake in the principal cells in the collecting duct and limit lithium toxicity. So it's really nice. Another thing with diabetes insipidus is you can give thiazides too. So in addition to free water, if it's nephrogenic and you give a thiazide, what you're doing is you're producing a paradoxical antidiuretic effect by tubular glomerular feedback. So what you do is you have an individual who's losing free water. What you do is you induce volume depletion in this patient. And by doing so, you're stimulating RAS. Um, so renin will stimulate angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 will go to angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 causes profound reuptake in the proximal tubule. So the proximal tubule reabsorption will change from about 60% of all solute and water up to even 90%. So you're going to get much more reabsorption on the proximal end of the nephron, which will leave you with less free water to lose on the back end of the nephron. So that can definitely work. And now if you're thinking about uh, central diabetes insipidus, well, the big thing is you either don't have ADH or you are unable to release ADH. 
So in this scenario, it's a very quick fix. You just supplement DDAVP, and DDAVP comes in oral dosing, comes in nasal sprays, comes in sub-Q injections, and it can be given intravenously in really severe cases. Um, in case of nasal mucosal inflammation or folks that are on mechanical ventilation, I wouldn't necessarily use the nasal spray due to not knowing how well it's going to be absorbed, but that is probably the easiest one to administer, and I would go with subcutaneous or intravenous at that point. That would be my personal preference. So hopefully this is a, I mean, it's not a very long uh, section. Hypernatremia doesn't have much to really discuss. Again, hypernatremia tends not to happen um, from a central perspective. You know, you have your trauma, you have your infiltration and so forth. So therefore you either have a loss of ADH release. So in traumatic um, diabetes insipidus or central diabetes insipidus, typically what you'll see, especially if you have jarring of that pituitary stalk, you have a profound discharge of ADH from the posterior pituitary leading to a substantial hyponatremia. And then once that ADH is all used, it flips 180 degrees. And instead of retaining all that free water, you start dumping all that free water. And usually this happens in like seven day intervals. So you'll have, you know, hyponatremia that's, you know, pretty significant and will start to taper off, you know, over the course of the seven days. Then you're going to start seeing diabetes insipidus occur, which will again, hopefully start to taper off within over the course of a week. And then you're going to start seeing a balancing and a regulation once the ADH starts, you know, being resynthesized and the pituitary stock is, you know, if it's minimal damage, that is, it's able to, you know, function appropriately and respond to stimuli. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen. And then you have to use DDAVP. Nasal Sprays are the best. They're the easiest. You don't have to deal with any needles, and there's better absorption than oral. Um, but again, if you have any nasal congestion, as you can tell that probably I do because of seasonal allergies, um, I would not be a good candidate. But, you know, sub-Q would definitely work in those patients. And then from a nephrogenic DI perspective, if it's lithium-based, well, you you can still probably get away with giving a milleride and block lithium absorption or lithium uptake in those principal cells. But if the horse is out of the barn in that case, well, then you can try the, you know, the thiazide and produce a volume depleted state, which will ultimately lead to RAS upregulation and proximal tubule reabsorption of all your solutes. So again, Di uh, hypernatremia typically happens in two people. It's the ones that we do it to because we tie them down, they're vented, and they have insensible losses that we forget to take into account. Or it's the demented individuals, profoundly demented individuals that lose their thirst drive. Outside of that, you do have some of the other acquired ones, which could be medication related or sad to say infiltration in the hypothalamus, but we do have treatment for it. And if it's not using free water, then it's using DDAVP or using thiazides or amiloride. So it shouldn't be too much to review. Very quick and easy section. Um, definitely share your comments if you have any and any questions, and I will talk to you on the next podcast.